Isaiah chapter 42, beginning in verse 1. And I'm going to read through verse 9 this morning. The prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to God's people, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison. Those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Nor my praise to carved idols. Behold. The former things have come to pass. And new things now I declare. Before they spring forth. I tell you. Of them. Our text this morning is considered the first servant song in this section that we're looking at together. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 55. There are four servant songs in this, in this section. Those four, four servant songs, this is the first. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. And then the next one will come a little later in Isaiah 49, 1 through 13, and then in 54 through 11, and then probably the most famous one is in 52, 13 through 53, 12. These four passages in Isaiah uh, talk about or describe one who is called the servant of the Lord, hence the servant songs. The New Testament specifically applies these these four passages to the person of Jesus Christ. And a simple reading of those with Jesus in mind, you'll see uh, just how specifically Jesus realizes what's here. And these passages are loaded with imagery that is in fact realized in the person of Jesus. The servant songs are therefore prophecies of Jesus, the Messiah, which are clearly and fully fulfilled in him. So as we work through these, uh, these chapters in Isaiah, we'll begin to look and see these coming to bear and in coming to fruition throughout our time together. Leading up to this text, we've been in chapters 40 and 41 so far in our time together. And God has, in those chapters, taken issue with idols. He's taken issue with the objects of worship 
that the people of Israel have gone after and the nations largely have gone after as well. And God has promised comfort to his people. He's promised strength to Israel. And he's done that by pointing out this idolatry that exists and removing obstacles that stand in the way of his people clearly seeing him, clearly perceiving who he is. He's made the high places low. He's brought the low places up. He's removed the things that stand in the sight lines of his people seeing him clearly. Now, God approaches his people in these passages in chapter 40 and 41 with rational thinking. He's appealing to their good sense and saying, if I'm, I'm the one who has created all things, I'm the one who gives you life, I'm the one who stands above all of the rulers of the earth, and therefore, therefore it would be silly, it would be foolishness to worship anything other than me. This is what God says to his people. Take a look around. The things of this earth, they come and they go. They are bound by time. Their strength is limited. They are limited to one place. They cannot span across the universe. And so God corrects his people because of the idolatry that they've gone after. And we see this earlier in Isaiah. Because they've gone after idols, because they've chased after these things, God has in fact allowed them to be taken into exile in Babylon as a measure of corrective discipline. But God is a kind father, and he doesn't allow his people to continue in those idolatrous ways, but again, he corrects them. But then he invites them back with open arms. He doesn't withdraw. He assures his people here in this passage as they wander, as they move to the wilderness in Babylon, that he is in fact with them there in Babylon, just as he was with them in Jerusalem. But as we get to chapter 42, there's a shift in the language. As we read those nine verses together, it's God speaking throughout those verses. God directly speaking to his people. There's a shift in the tone and the language that's being used. Because now what God is doing as he's revealed himself clearly to his people, now he is showing them, he is promising them the way in which he will bring eternal, lasting comfort and security for his people. God is promising the very way that he will bring them back to himself. As those who have gone astray, as those who have left him and decided to chase after other gods, he now says, this is the way I'm going to bring you back into right relationship and fellowship with me. The servant of the Lord that's described here in chapter 42 will represent God among the peoples of the earth. Now, something that we cannot miss in this passage is that these words, as they are specifically applied to Jesus in the New Testament, these words come 700 years before Jesus walks the earth. 
before Jesus condescended from heaven, before he was born in a stable in Bethlehem to his parents, Mary and Joseph, 700 years beforehand, the prophet Isaiah sees clearly and writes these words that find their fulfillment in Jesus. Uh, Just to give a little bit of perspective, the, the Black Death, the bubonic plague, that wasn't even 700 years ago. Wiped out nearly 50% of Europe's population. Uh, 700 years ago from our day, Columbus was still 200 years from sailing the ocean blue. We're, not, we're 248 years away from the Declaration of Independence. This is 700 years. 700 years with intense detail. Isaiah predicts the coming Messiah. It becomes an important observation for us to make. We approach a passage like this um, and we read it and we say, that's, that's cool. But we'd never think about the 700 years. 700. God sets himself apart from idols by speaking of events that would come in the near future. Cyrus the Great of Persia, who would be sort of the catalyst for the, the people who are in exile in Babylon being moved back into Jerusalem. That will come in the future for the people to whom Isaiah is writing right here, right now in this passage. No one knew who Cyrus was, and yet he'll name him in a couple of chapters. And so this meteoric rise of Cyrus the Great of Persia, who will come and conquer Babylon, laying the groundwork for God's people to return to their homeland. God predicts it here. But he does not only predict events in the near future, he predicts events in the distant future. The fulfillment of his promises to his people, and the person of Jesus, and his servant, his chosen one, the one in whom he delights. This kind of prophetic vision is not boasted of anywhere else in the world. This is not a reasonable guess based on general criteria. This is a God speaking to his people with immense clarity about what is going to happen both in the near and the distant future so that they can be certain beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is in fact God. God begins this process. He begins predicting his coming Messiah all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Three chapters in to the Bible. He makes promises there that are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Only fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And now 700 years before Jesus would walk the earth, here he makes startling prophecies about Jesus Christ. Our world can't make heads or tails of this. And even our own hearts and the ways that we're conditioned, we're we're conditioned to even begin to doubt this kind of specificity in Scripture. 
that would come so far in advance. It cuts against materialist and secular thinking. And scholars all throughout the last couple of centuries begin to dispute these words and when they were written. Well, it's written a lot closer to the coming Christ than, than they're claiming. And the, the scholars, they claim that these were added later by someone who wrote under the name of Isaiah, but it wasn't actually Isaiah. And then they begin to play fast and loose with the language to create confusion about whom the words here are referring. And there's all sorts of song and dance in the academic world to claim that the future cannot be known with this level of clarity. But again, what God is doing here in Isaiah 42 is what He's done in chapter 40 and chapter 41. He's not asking us to do anything but apply basic reason. What's more likely, God says to us here today, an elaborate plot to deceive people into thinking that God's words here lack the ability to predict the future, a plot that lasted several centuries and had a startling amount of consistency over several generations of people? Or God said what's written here through one man, the prophet Isaiah. And it's the simpler answer that's to be preferred. Basic, simple reasoning would say that it's the simpler answer. God said it. God said this. Through his servant, through the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before the coming Messiah. And right here at the end of our passage, if you look at verse 9, he says it. He wants us to know it. Behold, look, the former days have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Whether it be a couple of decades before Cyrus shows up on the scene, or seven centuries before Jesus does, God declares these things. He wants his people to know them, and they want, he wants them to know that he is in fact God. We, as people in the 21st century, are the beneficiaries of this proof that God offers to his people 700 years before the coming Messiah. Because now we see, 2,000 years after Jesus walked the face of the earth, we see the Messiah come to fulfill the words that God says here. His name is Jesus. And we have scripture that shows us who he is and how, specifically how he fulfilled these things. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the servant of the Lord who's described here in Isaiah 42. And I love, this is one of my favorite passages in scripture because it's so beautifully written and it paints such a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. And so my task is a joyful one this morning. I'm excited to, to look at these verses together with you. Four ideas out of Isaiah 42, 1 through 9 that we're going to look together. And they're all dealing with the servant of the Lord as is introduced to us here. Four things. First, the spirit of the Lord is upon the servant of the Lord. Second, the justice of the Lord brought through the servant of the Lord. Third, the humility of the servant of the Lord. And fourth, the compassion of the servant of the Lord. Those are four ideas that are emphasized here and we'll look at them one by one. 
First, the Spirit of the Lord upon the servant of the Lord. Look right away in verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Now, this is a place where our chapter breaks sometimes don't do us a service. So look back in your Bibles right at the verse directly before. Verse 29 of chapter 41. Behold, they, idols, are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So you have two verses here. You see both of them begin with the word behold. So there's a compare and contrast that God wants us to do. God wants to show us what the idols are doing and what Jesus is doing. He wants to show us the difference between man-made stuff and God wrought truth. God says in verse 29 of chapter 1, Look at the impotence of an emptiness of idols. They are nothing. Their works are nothing. And then, in chapter 42, verse 1, he, he tells us, Now, you looked at them and what they had to offer, and they were found wanting, they were found lacking, and now look at my servant. Look, look at my servant. Behold my servant whom I uphold, whom I have chosen, and whom my soul delights. What sets this servant apart is I have put my spirit upon him. Now there are key words here for us in this, these two verses. There's compare and contrast. We are told in verse 29 that their metal images are empty wind. And then in verse 1 of 42, I have put my spirit upon him. Now these two words are the same. Wind and spirit are the same in the original language. So there's a little bit of wordplay going on here. Both in the Old Testament Hebrew, the Old Testament is the majority of it is written in Hebrew, and the New Testament, the majority of which is written in Greek, and both of those languages, the word wind and spirit are the same. They're the same word. Now, there's a bit, so there's a bit of wordplay going on here. Empty wind, the Spirit of the Lord upon the servant of the Lord. These are used here for literary impact. There is no divine spirit in idols. There's no divine breath or wind. But the Spirit of the Lord is upon the servant of the Lord. So the emptiness of idols and the fullness of Christ. When we've discussed idolatry so far in Isaiah, and when we often think about idolatry in modern times, the way we usually begin to apply it is in an, in an individual sense. So like, what are my, my idols? What are the things that I go after? What am I tempted to trust? 
we rarely think about large-scale cultural idols. But when God goes after idols here in chapter 41, he's going after hundreds of pagan gods that hundreds of thousands of people worshipped, that hundreds of thousands of people sacrificed to on a regular basis, and that they prayed to, they become the epicenter of worship in all of these ancient cultures. And God is going after them. Worship practices, these worship practices in these ancient pagan cultures drove the economic stability of these societies. They drove the politics of these societies. And so when God goes after the idols that are largely worshipped or put at the center of the worship of these ancient societies, everything rests upon it. And to abandon these idols would mean economic, political disaster in some cases for these societies. God is fully aware of that. It's all so interwoven. God is, say, God is going after it all. He's saying we have to strip this down. And God's people, Israel, had in fact chased after these idols. And God asserts here his divine rule. But notice what he does. He he points out the fact that these idols and the worship of them is futility. And then what he does, what he doesn't do, is send hundreds of servants to combat the wickedness of all of these pagan gods and idols. He doesn't muster an army. He doesn't send a battalion of troops to topple the idols, to push them over and to prove that they're worthless. But what he does do is in the singular, he sends one servant. This one servant on whom the Spirit of the Lord rests stands as God's answer to all of the idols on the face of the earth. To all of them. God has chosen him. God delights in him. And God places his Spirit Upon him. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 3, in verses 13 through 17, the baptism of Jesus is recorded. And the visual fulfillment of what Isaiah writes here is found in this passage. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. You hear it in the declaration from heaven, the chosenness of Jesus. We see that there is delight in Him. He is well pleased in Him. And they saw the Spirit looked like a dove descending upon Jesus. The sounds 
I have placed my Spirit upon Him. I have chosen Him, my servant in whom my soul delights. Jesus Christ is therefore God's chosen alternative to idols. And by worshiping idols, we defame God because we go after cheap substitutes. But by worshiping Jesus Christ, we magnify God because we are delighting in what God delights in. Jesus Christ is therefore God's chosen alternative to idols, the one on whom His Spirit rests. Then the second thing that we see here in this passage is the justice of the Lord brought through the servant of the Lord. In the first four verses here, the word justice is used three times. And whenever you see a word in the Bible that's repeated that quickly, that it should indicate to you that there's something important. Three uses means we should pay attention. At the end of verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. At the end of verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. And then in the middle of verse 4, till he has established justice on the earth. The goal of the servant of the Lord, therefore, according to this passage, is to bring the justice of the Lord. Now, what does that look like? That idea, the idea of justice, isn't one that's always clear in our world. In fact, there's a lot that we import into that term. A lot that we think about the word justice. And so sometimes we struggle to define it biblically. In this instance, here in Isaiah 42, the idea is less like individual justice, but it's more like a just society. And although you can't really have a just society uh, outside of individual justice, there is, in fact, a larger scale understanding. What does God want to communicate that will be brought by the servant of the Lord? It is a larger scale societal justice. Think about it more like God's blueprint for human existence. What, is it, what does it look like to live in a society that lives according to God's word in every way, shape, and form? What would that society look like if it was shaped by what God says? This is what the servant of the Lord is bringing. This is what God is promising. This justice of the Lord. Right now, not a lot of people are super excited about the way things are going in our world. It doesn't matter what your politics are. It seems like there are a lot of people who are very upset about the direction things are going. It doesn't matter political affiliations or your career path, your socioeconomic status. No matter where you live, it seems like people are pretty discontent with the direction of the world. A quick glance at any news source will tell you that. 
No one is standing up currently in our society saying that we live in some idyllic utopia. Something inside of us, which I think is right, is screaming that there's something better for our society. But something we have to realize as a result of what God says here to his people is that all of the problems that our human society exists is because the blueprint has been dramatically violated. If you get plans to build a house and you ignore them entirely, you get something that isn't what was originally intended. And all of the problems in our human society that have always existed from the time that that fruit in the garden was bit into, all of the problems in human society have corrupting idolatries at the root. So we see things in our society, like political corruption, or abortion, or a mental health epidemic, or fatherlessness, or gender dysphoria, or all kinds of human misery that we all come in contact with regularly throughout our days. All of those things have their roots in corrupting idolatries at a societal level. And the question for us that's posed to us as we read about the servant of the Lord here is, do you long for a better life? Do you long for a better world? And again, a quick glance at what everyone is saying is, yes, we long for a better life. We long for a better world. We long for the justice that's spoken of here in Isaiah 42. And if You, everyone who says, I long for a better life and a better world. God says, I have the way. You long then for the justice the servant of the Lord brings. Because our solutions as people is to exchange one corrupting idolatry for another one. That's the solution that we have posed over and over and over again. This is the injustice of our world. But it's not just the failure of the legal system. It's not political problems. It's not civic concerns. It's first and foremost spiritual evil that lurks in the hearts of men. And because the corrupting idolatry corrupts us here, It becomes and fleshes itself out at the societal level. And so without the servant of the Lord on whom the spirit of the Lord rests, there is no hope for justice. There is no hope for this blueprint for human existence being realized. Should we seek a more just society? Yes. But should we pretend that society can Be just apart from Jesus Christ? No. Of course, for us, there's a lot of work to do. But Jesus doesn't just come to bring justice to the people of Israel. It's for everyone, for all of the nations of the earth. 
He says it right at the end of verse 1. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He doesn't just say for Israel. He doesn't just say for one people. He doesn't just say for this little group over here. He says for all of the nations. Every person on the face of the earth. Note that Jesus brings this justice faithfully. It says this at the end of verse 3. He doesn't drop the ball. He knows exactly what he's doing. He does so perfectly according to the word of God. And then, in verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. He doesn't get tired of it. He's not going to get tired. Look Look at the mess that's around us. Jesus Christ will not get tired of straightening it out. How different is this servant of the Lord than we are? I believe God's word far too little. I grow exhausted in carrying out my daily tasks. I grow discouraged when the needle doesn't move on the way that I want it to. But none of this is true for Jesus. Jesus Christ does not grow tired of carrying out the Father's will. He does not grow discouraged when things don't seem to go the way that he wants them to. He executes perfectly and he executes faithfully. Don't make the mistake of reading your own inadequacy, your own own feeble, fickle nature into the person of Jesus. Jesus is always faithful. He doesn't grow tired or discouraged while doing the Father's will. So our second point is the justice of the Lord brought through the servant of the Lord. The third thing then this morning is the humility of the servant of the Lord. Look at verse 2. Since the servant of the Lord is about to bring justice... Since he's going to bring justice to the nations, he's going to have to mount a big advertising campaign. He's going to have to brand really effectively. He's going to have to network across the globe and get his name out there. Actually, that's not what the text says at all. This is how we approach change in our world. But the way that Jesus approaches change is what we read in verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. The servant of the Lord in quiet humility will bring about all of God's purposes for humanity. This strategy, this humility is so far off our radar for getting things done or getting things headed the right direction for our society. Loud and boisterous and pushy and powerful and coercive. That's the path that we like to take. That's the path that we think will change things in our world. If there's going to be justice, we have to make some noise about it. But this is not how Jesus came into the world. He took the form of a servant. He washed the feet of 12 dudes who were less than not much to look at. 
He died a brutal death. Not only did he come in humility, he was irrevocably humiliated. We say we, as people, as we age, we want to die quietly and peacefully in our sleep. And most of the time when we say something like that, it's because we don't want the ones that we love to watch us suffer. It's a matter of dignity. But Jesus was stripped naked. His flesh was ripped from his bone. He gasped for breath as he slowly suffocated, lifted up on a cross of wood, high above the air so that everyone could see. I have this weird fear personally of like getting sick in front of people because I think it's like a dignity thing. I don't want people to see me as weak. But at the cross, there was no dignity in that show. This type of humiliation, we can't begin to identify with. But no one took his life. Jesus says, I lay my life down. No one takes it from me. Jesus laid down his life willingly. Friends, what this is meant to communicate to us is that justice in our world will not come through big political moves or loud calls for reform. The humility of the servant of the Lord shows us how God prefers to change the world. A quiet life of obedience to God's word. (laughs) That makes absolutely no sense. And yet, and yet, our human minds can't fathom that God could take something small and do something unimaginable with it. We think it's got to be big to make a difference. One author says it like this. He says, Jesus will succeed with his gentle servanthood where we have failed with our coercive pride. Solomon, King Solomon in Ecclesiastes 9 says, But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Friends, trust that the humility of the servant of the Lord achieves far greater results than the loudest show of power. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. And that brings us to the last point then this morning from this text. This is the compassion Of the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord. Deals. Compassionately. With. With people. He is humble. He is quiet. And he is also gentle. And compassionate. This is seen in verse 3. When he says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. God will not break 
those who are bruised. Jesus will not quench those who are barely clinging to life. Those who are downtrodden and feeling crushed, He comes to their aid. He doesn't discard them, but He seeks them out and seeks justice for them. I've mentioned this before, but one of my favorite books is The Bruised Reed, written by Puritan Richard Sibbs in 1630. The entire book, well, the majority of the book, covers this single verse in in Isaiah 42. Sibbs writes, In Christ all perfections of mercy and love meet. How great then must that mercy be that lodges in so gracious a heart. Whatever tenderness is scattered in husband, father, brother, head, all is but a beam from him. It is in him in the most eminent manner. We are weak, but we are his. We are deformed, but yet carry his image upon us. For this reason, Jesus, because we carry his image upon us, because of our weakness, Not because of our weakness, but because we belong to Him. Jesus has compassion on us as those who are broken and feeble. And remember last week the prediction of Cyrus in chapter 25, or in chapter uh, 41, verse 25. God says, I stirred one up from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as with the potter treads clay. This is Cyrus. This is a contrast with the servant of the Lord. Cyrus will be used by God, yes. For the good of Israel, yes. But Cyrus comes stomping around. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. This is how, this is how the rulers of the world do their thing. They don't know your name. They don't know that you're suffering. They don't know what sin has weighed you down. They trample around saying, we will bring justice. Our vision for society is the best one. We have the A clear picture of what needs to happen. Just go along with our plan. But they don't know your name. They don't know who you are or what you're suffering. But the beauty of chapter 42 is that Jesus does. He knows all of it. He knows everything that you are going through. He is full of mercy and he's full of compassion. And God continues to disrupt the thinking that the world has here. Humble and quiet, gentle and compassionate. Friends, this Christ came into the world. And through his servant, God takes his people by the hand. Look at verse 6. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Through his servant, God cares for his people. What he doesn't do is he doesn't angrily shout directions at them. That's my inclination as a dad. Go over there, do this thing now. 
That's not how God deals with his children. He doesn't tell us he's too busy to deal with our measly problems. Oh, that I would reflect God and his heart for his children instead of simply ignoring the words of mine. He takes his children and he pledges himself to them in Jesus Christ. God fulfills his purposes for the whole world through Jesus. And the text says in verse 6 that Jesus is a light to the nations. Those who are imprisoned because of the idolatrous corruptions that exist in the world, because of the sinful pursuits of our world, those who have been slammed to the ground by trampling rulers, those who have been bruised and are within an inch of being completely extinguished, Jesus is for those ones. But the bruised reed and the faintly burning wick isn't the way, isn't this way because the victim, or because they're a victim of other sins exclusively. Friends, we are all complicit in the sins that plague our society. And our own sins continually contribute to the brokenness that we see around us. Because what we cannot do is mistakenly begin to point fingers at everybody else. At all the subgroups of people that we think made the mess. Do not be deceived. Your sin and my sin is the source of the brokenness in the world. Your white lies, your small glances at the person who is not your spouse, your water cooler gossip, your anxiety around the political climate. Our idolatrous ideals have led us to believe that these acts are no big deal and it perpetuates blindness and leads people into further darkness. But there is a solution. There is one solution. The solution is the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who makes the way for his people to be forgiven of the sin that they committed, to be given new life in him, that they may become his representatives on earth. God is moving. He is moving through Jesus. The people that Jesus Christ bought through his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection, this eternal life that comes to you is held out to you. And now you become an ambassador for him. And because of his sacrificial death, he purchased everything necessary to establish justice upon the earth. This blueprint for human existence will come to fruition because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And so the call is, when you see the idolatrous ideals that have left our society broken, And when you're tempted to point at all those subgroups around you and say, they're the ones who's to blame for this mess. The call is to come to Christ. Stop, Stop pointing the fingers and come to Christ. Come to Him by faith. Believe that He was sent from heaven to accomplish the very thing that God says He is sending Him to do here. Bring forth justice to the nations. There is no alternative solution. 
Your sin has left you bruised and broken. Salvation sought in other places are empty wind. No matter how much they promise, they will leave you trampled and in a worsened state. But salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, you seek the gentle compassion that only He can provide. He brings healing and life and promises this reality for our world to us. And so come to Christ. Trust in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you think that Jesus won't accept you because of all of the things that you've done, this passage is meant to change your mind. Jesus cares about every bruised reed and every faintly burning wick. He plans to bring justice to the world and gently and compassionately care for sinners. Justice for the world. Compassionate care for sinners. But the first doesn't mean that he doesn't have time for the second. Again, the rulers of the earth say, we will bring justice to the earth. But they can't know your name. They are limited. They are creatures in themselves. But Jesus can do both. And he will do both. And in fact, it may be more accurate to say that his plan to bring justice to the world is through humble service, gently and compassionately caring for sinners. Jesus will bring justice to the earth, to the world, to the brokenness of human society that we live in. He will bring it about through the compassionate and gentle care for sinners. That leads us to a conclusion this morning. Four things quickly. First is this. Christ is the only answer to all the injustices we see in the world. Friends, again, we are being constantly overrun with opinions on how to fix the world we live in. Brothers and sisters, you already know the solution. Jesus Christ came into the world in direct contrast to humanity's idolatrous ideas. Injustice is spiritual evil and a denial of God. And as Christians, we're called to address injustice at its root. The church exists to make Christ known and to put him in direct contrast with the idolatrous ideals that the world offers us. It's only Christ who can fix the wrongs and can finally and fully fix the wrongs in the world. What does this mean for us? It means that our unbelieving friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors, they need to hear about Jesus. In their hurt and in their despair and in their frustration, in their grief, they need to hear about Jesus Christ. They need to hear about a, G- a Jesus who, through the gentle and compassionate care for sinners, will in fact bring about justice to the world. They can hear not they can hear about Jesus who doesn't shout and clamor but the one who can sympathize with our weakness because he was tempted in every way yet 
without sin. This is a matter of faith for us as the church. Because the phrase that I said is the concluding point here, that Christ is the only answer to all the injustices we see in the world, is often met with functional objections. We say like, yes, of course, but then we just pay that concept lip service. We say, but it doesn't really help solve the problems of, say, homelessness or starvation. But God says it does. Starvation isn't first about a lack of food. Homelessness isn't first about a lack of shelter. It's about a world that is steeped in sin that has chased after idols for millennia. A world that is full of people who love themselves way more than they love the Lord or love their neighbor. And God's plan to deal with injustice in the world is through the renovation of human hearts and that only comes through the person of Jesus. It seems ineffective and slow to us, but the wisdom of God is often foolish to us. The second concluding point is this. Christ shows us the way of humility. Most every important figure in history before Jesus came stomping around, loud, boisterous, pushy, powerful, coercive. Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and Alexander the Great came conquering with the sword. But the servant of the Lord comes completely opposite, not crying aloud, not lifting up his voice. This is the way of humility that we are to follow him. Paul in Philippians 2, 5 writes, Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What is this mind? The mind of Christ is one that humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Small, forgotten, quiet, gentle is the way of the king. A baby born to a teenage virgin in a stable. Foxes have homes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. Despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. We are freed to follow the king in this way. Not to draw attention to ourselves and our achievements and our accomplishments and our performance, but to quietly and humbly follow Jesus with the mind of Christ. Not to strive after large famous things, but to humbly receive good gifts that he bestows upon us. <clears throat> Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Third, Christ's compassion is an infinite well. Christ's compassion is an infinite well. Brothers and sisters, many of us are those who beat ourselves up every time we fall into sin. And sin bruises and threatens to extinguish us. But the compassion of Christ is an infinite well. There is none who has come to Christ by faith, bruised and barely still going, that he has turned away. If you're bruised, if you feel like you're at the end, come to Christ. Jesus is not too busy, but he delights to do the Father's will. And the servant of the Lord is a delight to the Father. 
And the justice that servant of the Lord brings comes through the tender care of the bruised and the broken. It is the delight of your God to, through Jesus, lead you to still waters and restore your soul. The gentle compassion of Christ will never dry up. Jesus stopped nothing short, even death on a cross, to compassionately care for all who come to him. Finally, God is glorified through the disruption of worldly wisdom. Look at verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to a carved idol. How is God glorified? When the servant of the Lord brings justice to a world corrupted by idolatrous ideals, there's no doubt that the ways of the world can can concoct this idea. God is glorified when through Jesus Christ, he disrupts the way people think and the world is changed. Glory to God alone. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your kindness. God, we thank you that you have in fact put on display for us your kindness in the person of Jesus. God, we recognize that there is no way that we could possibly come up with this idea. Quiet, gentle, compassion for sinners as the way to correct all of the issues and the problems that plague our society. God, would you now, in this time, as we finish our time together this morning and go into our week, would you convince us that you are God? Would you convince us through your spirit that you have our good in mind God, we thank you. Thank you that that we can see that clearly in the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name, by the Spirit we pray. Amen.